This is An American Workplace, a podcast dedicated to rewatching and discussing NBC's beloved mockumentary series, The Office. My name is Katie White, and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host, Chad Hopkins. Hello, Chad. How you doing? I am doing all right. How about you? I'm well. I just got back from a week in Texas visiting my parents, who live in the middle of nowhere, so I did nothing for a week. It was perfect. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I did not do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we had a middle school football game that I got to have a great time at yesterday. No, I wasn't that bad, but I was also co-in charge with or of 170 kids. So, mm. well, it wasn't that many. It was like 90. And you know what's notoriously really exciting? Middle what? school football. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> before we get into today's episode, which is uh, a good episode of The Office, at least, hopefully <laughs> ours is we'll good, see. too. <laughs> uh, but before we get into it, we've got new reviews, lots of new reviews this week. In fact, three of them came in just today. So thanks to Jay Freezy, Sheila, Dwight Fartschrut, uh, hmm. <laughs> Twin Mama 34 and John Mark 41 for giving us reviews on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. And to Alfred, who recommended us on Facebook. Thank you, Alfred. So diving into our first episode of discussion today, Murder, aired November 12th, 2009, directed by Greg Daniels, written by Danny Chun, the first we've gotten from Danny. Uncertainty breaks into the office when they learn from a Wall Street Journal article that Dunder Mifflin is in some deep financial trouble. Jim wants everyone to delve into their work to keep their minds off of things, but Michael has a better idea? A murder mystery game. As they anxiously await more news from corporate, they dive into a world of murder and intrigue in the depths of Savannah, Georgia, I do declare. It's a fun one. I like this episode. It's a little infuriating, but we will get into the specifics here in a second. So Michael just, at the beginning of the episode, when we see this financial burden sort of be placed upon the heads of these people, Jim handles it, as you said, in a very different way. He kind of channels that negative news into, okay, we'll just work through it and we'll work through it. Michael crumbles. We see him throw up. Well, we don't see him. We, we hear him, rather, throw up in the bathroom. He's just absolutely distraught. And of course, this is his whole life. Anyone would, would be worried about losing their job, but this is Michael's prize. Yeah, if Michael loses his job, if he doesn't have his job, what does he have at this point in his right. life? He's not dating anyone. Um, he doesn't have really any friends to speak of. He's kind of in a screwed position if he loses his job at Dunder Mifflin because that's what he's thrown everything into. Yeah, so I understand why he's so upset. However, he decides to um, distract the employees with this murder mystery game. So we, we, we see the inside of Michael's cabinet in his office, which is just chock full of board games because you need about 75 board games at work. Mm -hmm. And he pulls out this um, Bell's Bourbon and Bullets game where people assume identities and there's a, a murderer. It's sort of like Clue, but with real life i mm -hmm. with role play of, right um and so that takes up their entire day at work yeah i'm I'm curious why he had this specific game i i don't it's, it's called a dinner party game and i we've, we've seen michael's one and only dinner party and it didn't turn out too well 
Um, <laughs> and there was surprisingly little role play from my experience at dinner parties. <laughs> uh, but anyway, <laughs> he... He says that games have the power to distract people from stressful situations. And so we're getting a glimpse into Michael's sort of psyche a little bit. He says uh, Battleship got him through his parents' divorce. Operation got him through his vasectomy, i.e. his operation. And Toss Across is the only way he got through his breakup with Holly. Now, especially with Operation being directly analogous to his operation, I thought maybe the others have a similar sort of comparison like battleship divorce you could have this concept of uh sides fighting against each other now that sort of fell apart because i couldn't think of any sort of analogy for toss across and a breakup with holly just get the anger out and throw things yeah maybe (laughs) i don't know um but still we we see how michael copes with things He, he tries to seek out things that are a little bit more fun uh in these tense situations and as you said, I mean, he is absolutely sick over this. He he tries calling David after they find this article, and David's unavailable. Michael just sort of laughs it off, or at least it looks like he's laughing it off, but it's very forced, and then he we automatically cut to him vomiting. So it, it's interesting that this is his outlet and that he brings it to everybody else. And even within this fantasy, he has to place himself in the the persona of a playboy taking a different woman home every night, and he's hugging and kissing and spooning them, which I thought was pretty innocent. He could have gone a lot farther than just spooning, but yeah, I don't know. He's got. This, I'm glad he didn't. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't. <laughs> but his southern accent is just one of several bad southern accents we hear in this episode. He starts off this whole thing. They're in the middle of a conference meeting and um, he runs out and he fakes a phone call. He barges in and he's, he acts like something horrible has happened. He says, there's been a murder. And everyone, uh, okay. I mean, for the, for the day of bad news we're having, like this could, <laughs> this might be true for all they know. And then he says, a murder in Savannah. And then he just leaves the room to let them figure out what that means, and he goes to get the board game. It's just a very odd, it seems like a fight-or-flight situation. He's just got to do something right now. He even argues to Jim that this is big-picture stuff, apparently, because it's about murder. Um, He's just trying to basically overrule Jim's opinion on this. Jim thinks this is totally inappropriate, and that it's not big-picture. It's, in fact, let's just get through today. This is just day-to-day. But Michael wins out. We definitely do see these two people's uh, differences in handling stressful situations. Michael does throw himself into the fun and Jim tries to throw himself into the work. And so in those moments during the conference room or in the conference room, when he's supposed to be working, he's instead supervising this game and his knees bouncing. He's very clearly very nervous. It's not this kind of thing that takes his mind off of what needs to be done. And so uh, even when he calls David later, he says, well, in the midst of everything else, here's this new client pitch I've been working on. Do you want to listen to it? And I think it's partly David saying, Jim, I kind of got bigger fish to fry right now and bigger things to worry about. It's cool that you're working on this. Keep doing it. But I've got other things to to throw my attention at. And I think that's what really makes Jim realize that maybe maybe Michael has something here 
um, it was right before that phone call with David that Michael straight up confronts him and says, listen, just let these people have this stupid game. He, this, this isn't so much, in my mind at least, a disagreement over their power and responsibility like we've seen in a couple of the previous episodes. It's a disagreement over what they think is best for their employees in this moment. Um, and to be fair for Michael, he has a lot more experience in that. So I'm not saying it's necessarily 100% the right thing to be doing, but I think it definitely has some merit, especially when you see that the CFO of the company can't even be bothered to do like work in this moment, or at least not the day-to-day kind of work that Jim is trying to push on people. And then in the middle of the game, Oscar interrupts the game with real Dunder Mifflin news, and Michael even goes so far as to stop him. We don't need this right now. We're in the middle of a game. He, he goes so far as to halt reality. Even I, I, I get it when there's no news and everyone is just kind of panicking. But when there is news that is actually relevant and, and new, Michael doesn't even want to hear it then. So the, the way I see it, though, is the news that they're getting during this day, Oscar's news about freezing outgoing money. And then Jim, when he does get on the phone with David, David says, we expect to be out of money by the end of the year. Um, mm-hmm. Jim doesn't pass on that information either, because I think he, he understands that's just going to cause more panic when they still, there still might be possibilities. There still might be a solution out there. And it's like shouting fire in an auditorium. There, there's right. just no necessary, there's not a need for it. It's more of a need to know. And it's like a legitimate need to know, not a BS need to know, where someone is like, oh, well, you're not privy to this information. I think Jim is just trying to protect these people and let them sort of have their innocence for now until there is a more permanent or at least long-reaching uh, solution in place. And so mm-hmm. Jim steps out of his office after that phone call with David. He says, well, there's nothing really happening, but there is some more bad news. There has been another murder. And that's Jim's first time slipping into the accent, slipping into the game. And to me, it's just saying, okay, Michael, I get it. There's some merit to what you're doing here. Let's have fun for today and we'll get back at it tomorrow. Yeah. That's sort of how these two leave this episode. Jim says, um, I think it was a good day to have two managers. If you're a family and you're stuck on a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean, one parent might want to just keep rowing, but the other parent wants to play a game. It's not because they're crazy. It's because they're doing it for the kids. And I get that now, which is a really astute and, and real decision from that other mm-hmm. hypothetical parent. I mean, you got to keep the masses calm and that's, yeah, whether it was intentional or, or not, that's what Michael is doing. And Michael, for his part, says at the end, this is the hardest I've worked in a long, long time. <laughs> and you kind of think, wow, Michael, wow. And it is sort of indicative of, remember in Mafia when I pointed out that he had his whole day marked aside for free play and creative space? I, I made the comment then that it seemed like there's just not a lot for Michael to do because his responsibilities are now being split between two people. Uh, so maybe it's leaning towards that. Michael's saying, yeah, I haven't had to do something in a while. And it also shows to me on a more p- positive light that he works his hardest when his people are in crisis. Um, I don't see it as a bad thing in this scenario because just because the thing he's working on is a little bit silly 
It's to keep up morale. It's to keep people happy. It's to sort of protect them from themselves in a way. And mm-hmm. so he's really to lend credence to the whole, this is big picture argument. Um, these people are worried about their jobs in the long term. And so they need a distraction in the short term. And that's where Michael is working hard to help these people out. There's also a B plot here with Andy and Aaron. Andy, we've seen develop this little crush on Aaron. Um, he's using the lightness of this game to ask Aaron out. Uh, of course, there is the elephant in the room that the company might be going under. So kind of do what you can, you know. He asks her out, but he does it in character, in his Savannah character. She accepts in character. All seems fine until they're playing the game later and Andy realizes that he may have asked out Naughty Nelly, Aaron's character, instead of the real Aaron. So he asks her later, as Andy, if she's excited for the date, and she replies, of course, Nathaniel, in her character. So he kind of resigns. Okay, I'll take you to the finest place in Savannah. And she says, well, that's a long way from Scranton. So he's really confused. He plays it like he didn't ask her out because... I guess better to not ask her out than be embarrassed you did. It's all just really awkward, and it turns out that she thought he did ask her out, and she was excited. But don't ask somebody out if you're not going to be your own, like, don't be Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's all kinds of backwards. Andy says, uh, towards the beginning, he says, I was kind of hoping she'd ask me out, but things have not panned out on that front. I wrote, be a man and ask her out. And I'm not I'm not trying to like promote gender stereotypes. Like if the girl wants to ask him out, do that too. The point is if you like somebody and you would like to go out with them, ask them out. Don't expect the other person to do it for you. Man, woman, whatever, I don't care. Ask somebody if you have interest in going out with them. And Andy is just he he hasn't learned that yet. And go uh, using his accent for the game was just a poor choice. And then, as you said, he just reacted poorly whenever it was revealed that this might have been real. And he, he try to, tries to shrug, shrug it off. Aaron is clearly disappointed. So now we've seen, I mean, we've seen it before, reciprocity with each of them. They definitely like each other and they're just mm-hmm. not connecting. Yeah, it's almost, I don't want to say opposite of Jim and Pam, but it kind of is. Because in the beginning, Jim and Pam were sort of into each other, but they couldn't be into each other. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, Andy and Aaron are both into each other. Clearly, they have no other person tying them down. The relationship is ripe for the taking, and they're just sort of avoiding it for whatever other reason they have. Which I feel like is more traditional, not traditional, but more common with, I don't know. I mean, oh, does he, does he like me? I'm not going to say anything. Oh, well, she's not going to, she doesn't like me because she hasn't said anything. And it's just back and forth and like, oh, somebody say something, please. This is like... <laughs> Middle school relationships 101. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anything else you wanted to mention character-wise? Well, just since we were talking about Andy, his accent is so irritating. But from my research, it appears that it's actually pretty accurate, which could be trusted to the fact that both Ed Helms and Brian Baumgartner, who plays Kevin, are from Atlanta, or from Georgia. Um, so you'd trust them to have the accent right. It's just still irritating. <laughs> So (laughs) it's just, they just do it in a thick accent. Like molasses spilling out of the mouth. (laughs) (laughs) 
moving on to some funny moments. Speaking of molasses, uh, what do you have for us? Well, there's the cold open <laughs> where Dwight is holding an annual seminar on the, quote, latest in martial arts. Because, as Jim says, as we all know, the one thing thousand-year-old martial arts do all the time is change. <laughs> so Dwight is, uh, when we first see him, he's like pretending to beat up Phyllis. And then he, after Dwight's t- uh, talking head says, how can I pose this to you in a relatable way? You are all members of the Yakuza. And Jim just like, yes, yes, I relate to that. <laughs> he tries to make this more relatable for them, and it's clearly not working. Jim then points out that, well, Dwight, you can't fight us because we're not worthy of fighting you. Your most worthy opponent is you, Dwight. So Jim asks him, okay, so if Dwight attacks you with the throat punch, how would you, Dwight, defend? So Dwight ends up beating up himself in demonstration, and um, he would not do this half-heartedly of course so he actually starts like (laughs) stepping on an instep and punches and he's just oh he's making you look like such a fool oh he really is but not for long and he attacks himself and it's just and it ends with him punching himself in the groin as a quote element of surprise (laughs) (laughs) when the email from david wallace gets sent to everyone dwight reads it out loud um about the article in the in the journal he just wants to stress. It's just conjecture, blah, blah, blah. Aaron gets asked from Michael, do we have the journal? Aaron says, your feelings journal? You told me to put it in the time capsule. <laughs> Pam says, Michael, he means the Wall Street Journal online. Michael says, oh, the wall. Okay, no one calls it that. And I think he just didn't know what the journal was, which yeah. is a pretty common business <laughs> news yeah. uh, paper. So. I also love leading up to that email. Dwight says, Michael, what is the meaning of this email that everyone got? Michael says, you'll have to be more specific, Dwight. I get like eight emails a day. I'm like, <laughs> eight emails if only. Oh, my God. <laughs> this one's so immature, but given who says it, um, it's just pretty right on. Kevin approaches the bathroom as he hears um, Michael throwing up in the bathroom. He walks in and he's, he asks if Michael's okay. Did you throw up in there? Michael says, nope, just pooping. You know how I be. Kevin <laughs> digs further. He really wants to get to the bottom of this. And he says, it smells like throw up in here. <laughs> Michael, crazy world, a lot of smells. <laughs> I would be lying if I said I didn't use the, the just pooping line more often <laughs> than I probably should. You know how I be. You know how I be. <laughs> After reading the article from The Wall online. Uh, Michael is listening to Lullaby by Sean Mullins in his office. It reminds me of back in Benihana Christmas when he is listening to the the sort of like 15-second iTunes preview of Goodbye My Lover by James Blunt after Carol dumped him. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if he was listening to a 15-second preview of this song as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but still, it it was a nice sort of throwback to... uh, how Michael has dealt with depression in the past. We see why Michael gets to play this game, the murder game. Um, He says to Jim, you owe me one. So Jim owes Michael for not letting him do, quote, tube city, a concept where Michael runs plastic tubes all over the office and places live hamsters inside. So technically he does owe Michael one, and this is what Michael picked. (laughs) 
Yeah. My favorite part of that is it's another sort of quick cut after Jim says his thing. He says, so yes, I do owe him one cut. Like it's like he, there was about to be a big butt, but yeah. they, they decided to cut right there. Yeah. At the start of the game, both Stanley and Angela try to leave, but Michael says, there will be food. And Stanley asks, what, what's the food? Stanley or Michael tells him sandwich platters. And so Stanley says, okay, I'll stay. Angela starts to leave again. Michael says, baby carrots. <laughs> and so he's promising these people food so that they stay and play his game. You can't say he doesn't know his employees. Yeah, that is, that is true. <laughs> Michael is explaining the game and he suggests to Kevin that if you talk slowly in real life, maybe your character got kicked in the head by a horse. Kevin says, cool, I'll try it. (laughs) Really take on, you know, like make the character your own. Michael's favorite catchphrase while speaking with this accent is, I do declare, because he says that's how Southern people talk. One of my favorite times he uses it is when Dwight's character is interrogating him. And he says, I already declared you. It was too dark to tell. (laughs) And then my other favorite time is at the end when Jim does say, uh, there has been another murder. And Michael says, another murder, you say? I do declare. (laughs) Just this, this like sly grin on his face. And he speaks real slowly. It's fun. One of my favorite Southern phrases is um, when... Michael has a brief talking head where he says, I do believe that the game is a big hit. People are really diving into their characters. And the camera just cuts to Kevin and he just says, y'all. <laughs> it's real dragged out. He's like holding a cigar. <laughs> y'all. <laughs> Fair. I mean, I Fair. live in Texas. I say it. Yeah. <laughs> I get made I try fun not of up here, to. but I say it. <laughs> I-, I do try to avoid it, but sometimes, I mean... It you know happens. what? Every, almost every other language has a plural you, except for English. So mm-hmm. the South is on to something. <laughs> uh, at the very beginning of the episode, when they're reading the article on the wall, I love how everybody's gathered around Oscar's computer and they read the first part of it. And he's like, oh, well, it's another $1.99 to read the rest of the article. <laughs> and Michael says, huh. I wonder what it was going to say. <laughs> and so everybody's just like standing around. It, it's $2. And Jim just, uh, he's frustrated. He sets for it. Seriously, guys. And he puts in his card information. And then Andy, being ridiculous as he is, oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, and he, he like pretends that he was going to pay for it. But Jim just beat him to it. But no, you waited until Jim already stepped up to do it. I could never figure out if it was that Jim was paying for it and that Andy was offering to pay or... If Jim, Jim was signing into his Wall Street Journal account because he would, I don't know, be the kind of guy who reads it. And Andy is like, no, I have one, too. I'll log in. It's probably paying for it. Mm-hmm. But I, that thought always crossed my mind. I don't know why. Yeah, either way, it sort of makes sense. Yeah. The, the fact is everybody was just standing there right. until Jim stepped forward. It's like, <laughs> it like, come on, guys. I need to know what's happening about our company. <laughs> Do you guys not need to know? Michael was just so resigned. Like, oh, man, that was going to be great. <laughs> It would have been great to have known what that was going to say. I guess we'll never know. One of the greatest moments of this episode, someone's running late today and it's Creed. <laughs> he pulls in late. He goes upstairs. Sorry, I'm, I'm late, boss. What's going on? Michael says, sir, there has been a murder and you are a suspect. 
Creed, totally cool, says, okay, hang on just a second. Let me go settle in and I'll be right back. And we see him um, run downstairs, run to his car, and he just screeches away. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Makes you wonder. Makes you wonder things. Mm. After Andy does the Savannah accent for Pam, Kevin says, cool, can you do the Swedish chef? The, The Muppet, the Swedish chef. And Andy responds, mm, not familiar. What province is he from? As if that would make a difference because he knows the provinces of Sweden, uh, which deleted scenes, maybe he does. Maybe but he does. Kevin responds, he lives on Sesame Street, dumbass. <laughs> which, <laughs> although inaccurate, it is really funny. And because there's so many, I'll just pick one more. <laughs> Dwight is interrogating, or rather Dwight's character is interrogating Angela's character. He says, voodoo mama juju, explain your allegiance with the dark arts. Angela says, it's not my fault. I was exposed to Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) Which, a little bit of backstory about me, um, went to a very, very, very religious elementary school where I bought the Harry Potter books and I had one in my backpack and I was prayed for a lot. Because I was reading Harry Potter and publicly, and I was just, that just made me laugh a whole lot because mm. clearly now <laughs> I have an allegiance with the dark arts. Anyway. Uh, clearly. <laughs> Mama Juju Boo Boo. That's my favorite time when he mixes up the words. <laughs> uh, I, I do have just a couple more that are just too good to pass up. Um, Dwight says, it's never the person you most suspect, and it's also never the person you least suspect, since anyone with half a brain would suspect them the most. Therefore, I know the killer to be Beatrix Bourbon, the person I most medium suspect. And the funny thing is, he ends up being right. And that's yet another mystery that Dwight has solved, even if this one was a game. So that makes The Secret with Oscar being or playing hooky with work in season two. Uh, just a few episodes back, The Meeting. Um, where Daryl lied about how he got his injury. Dwight was right about that too. And I guess if you want to, you can count the beat bandit. But I mean, this is just another one to the tally. Dwight's doing a pretty good job. I had that written down in my character notes and I forgot to say it. He, there's something to it. I (laughs) can't deny. Um, let's see. Um, we would be remiss if we did not mention Oscar's moment to shine. Oh. He he, he come, when he comes that, in with yeah. that extra information that we talked about earlier, Michael says, "What is this strange Yankee accent coming out of your mouth?" So, Oscar trying to convey instru- uh, information but also trying to can or to participate in the game says, "It's a this this plantation. We're running low on, on greenbacks. We're having problems paying the people who give us the seeds and the dirt." We, we can't, pay. and then he, then it breaks. <laughs> <He's>, Michael, Michael, <laughs> he's kind of up here in his his yeah. falsetto. <laughs> <laughs> There's a funny tidbit about that from the commentary too that we'll get to. But now, sorry, the last moment I wanted to mention <laughs> is the standoffs that happen at the end. Uh, the first one is between Dwight, Andy, and Michael. They're sort of standing in a triangle and holding their quote guns at each other, and Michael says, on the count of three, we're going to lower our guns. Dwight says, I have crossbows. Because, of course, Dwight has crossbows. Michael, not throwing a fight, not trying to contradict him, says, okay. 
we will put down our weaponry on three. <laughs> uh, they, they slowly lower them and then they aim it back at each other. And then very end, Pam is part of the standoff as well. And I, I just love how into it Pam all of a sudden got. And she's like, I, I didn't do it. I ain't going down for this. And she slowly backs up as she tells Jim to grab the keys out of her purse and start the car and backs up, backs up. And then she makes a break for it right before the other three uh, finally kill each other <laughs> and squirm on the ground and writhe on the ground in the final moments of the episode. And I would have loved to have been there when they got up. Like, how long did they lay there? Did they play dead for a significant amount of time? Did they get up and then try and play some sort of resurrection scenario? Did they just like awkwardly stand up and say goodbye? I, I don't know. I have so many yeah. questions, uh, especially because Jim revealed that Andy revealed himself to be a double agent, at which point Dwight felt comfortable revealing that he was also a double agent. And Michael announced to everybody that, get this, he was a double agent. So funny moments there in the end of the episode as they continued to play the game, despite it being way past closing time. Deleted scenes. We only had a few, but they were a little bit lengthy. Uh, so the first one. Michael nervously runs to reception every time the phone rings, thinking it'll be David or something about news about the office. It's not. Still no news. He chastises Aaron for making it look like the phone was for Michael when it's not. Okay. She looks up. I don't know. He says, you're going to make me poop my pants. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He goes back in his office. She says, Michael. And he comes running. She begins to apologize for what she was doing. He, again, thought she had news. He, he gets mad at her. He says, don't even talk. Don't even talk to me unless the phone's for me. And he kind of renegs. He says, you're really, really very nice, but you're pissing me off. <laughs> and she starts to cry. Uh, she's pretty sensitive. And he says, don't cry. Everyone's sort of high strung. Chalk it up to that. He kind of apologizes without apologizing. She laughs at that. And he says, don't laugh either. Don't cry and don't laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, He's all over the place. He's very nervous and he treats Aaron pretty poorly, but I don't know. Filing into the conference room for the meeting before they start the game, Andy debates out loud, oh, where am I going to sit? Am I going to sit in this chair? Am I going to sit in this chair? And he's just sort of mulling it over out loud. And he waits until Aaron enters and sits down and, oh, this one it is, the seat right next to her. So Convenient. Very, very subtle is what that is. Jim tries to play along with the game um, in his own little sarcastic way by pretending he's a time traveler from 2009 and that there's a paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania that's not getting a lot of work done. Dwight argues that that's not fair. If Jim gets to travel in time, then Dwight should be able to travel back in time to the (sighs) night of the murder and find out who killed the victim. Jim allows it. Dwight says, okay, I just did. But it was too dark, and I couldn't see who the murderer was. (laughs) (laughs) Jim was just desperately trying to find an end to this, and he thought allowing Dwight to time travel would be it, but no such luck. Andy makes up a fake history for his character Nathaniel, saying he was adopted. Uh, Ryan says, what does that have to do with the mystery? Nathaniel says, nothing in particular, but then he turns to Nellie, Aaron's character, and says, so we are not blood relations because their characters are supposed to be brother and sister. And so he's trying to find a loophole so that they can be together in even this though, fantasy even. Yeah. Even if it's just for the game. Jim and Pam 
try to crack Michael out of his character and into reality. <laughs> Pam says, where are you right now, Michael? Savannah, Georgia. What year is it? 1955. What did you have for breakfast? I believe I had grits. <laughs> what is the main industry in Savannah? Murder. <laughs> Murder. And I just love that Jim and Pam were on the same page with cracking Michael. Like, I doubt that they talked about this. They just mm-hmm. used the same tactic. Like, okay, wh- where is he right now? Can we just right. make him not know an answer? <laughs> yeah, because in the episode, they were debating on whether he had snapped or whether he was just stuck in character and they didn't know which one was worse. And so right. here they are trying to figure that out. Uh, we did have a commentary from Greg Daniels, who, uh, remember, is the original show creator. Uh, Danny Chun, who wrote this episode, and then randomly Ellie Kemper, who's Aaron. So one of the, the early details I wrote down is that they filmed the cold open the morning after the Emmys. And uh, apparently after they filmed it, Rain asked, could John Cryer do that? <laughs> and John Cryer uh, was from Two and a Half Men. He played the not Charlie Sheen character. Uh, and he had just won for his work on that show for Two and a Half Men. So. And Rain was up against him for yeah. The Office for mm-hmm. Best Supporting for, Actor. Yeah, and it was for the episode uh, Heavy Negotiations at the end of season five. Mm. The original ending to the cold open had Dwight and Michael kicking each other in the groin, but the idea of Dwight attacking himself came from Denzelata. And I mm-hmm. put that because I, I kind of forget and I like that even though we have a writer of the show, there it's a collaboration and other writers propose ideas and that kind of ends up in the in the story but there is an overseeing writer of of Mm -hmm. the show yeah i'm 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 not sure they do the do it the exact same way but like watching all the breaking bad commentary and deleted scenes and stuff the way their writers room worked is they would all gather together all the writers of the show and they would note card story beats for an episode and then they would have one person actually write the episode, including those story beats that they came up with together. So I don't know, maybe it works the same way here. Uh, mm. But it's a cool process that it is so collaborative. There was originally a commercial break immediately after Michael said, there has been a murder. But then they thought that was sort of cruel to the watching at home audience to then reveal immediately after the commercial break that it was just a board game. <laughs> yeah, they said it was kind of a cheap mislead. Um, yeah, they, what did they call it? They called it a yank, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and they referred to like an episode of The Simpsons where uh, a character would come in and said, you're fired, and then commercial break, and then right after, just kidding. Yeah. It, it was just like something silly like that. Gene Stibnitsky had run the Catch You on the Flippity Flop line several times, but it only made it into two episodes, the first being the meeting earlier this season. Other names from the game uh, within the show that we just didn't hear, uh, there was Paul Meadow, there was Connie Federate, and then there was Dick Sealand. Dick Sealand. <laughs> Someone on some blog pointed out that when Jim turns down Michael's music on his computer, um, they use Mac volume sounds, but mm-hmm. that Michael uses a PC. And Ellie yeah. was just so shocked that like, oh my gosh, I can't believe somebody pointed that out and i just immediately thought of the fandom today i'm like oh <laughs> no it's not yeah, shocking <laughs> yeah, not at all office fan, office fans be crazy we love y'all but you'd be crazy you'd be crazy we'd be crazy <laughs> <laughs> um there was a deleted scene that was not included uh where andy had a talking head about how he went to a dialect camp 
from ages 8 to 18, and then he was a counselor for 10 years. So when he asks Kevin, what province of Sweden is this chef from, he might have known somehow all the dialects for all the different provinces of Sweden. So That would be ages 8 to 28 at dialect camp. That is insane. Yeah, crazy. I thought this was interesting. They mentioned that whenever they reblock something, it's often because they forgot that the shot should be a spy shot or where the camera is not in the room with the mm-hmm. characters. Should or shouldn't the characters know that the cameras are watching them at this point? Do you remember the scene that they were talking about in particular? It was um Yeah, it was when Andy first asked Aaron out in the kitchen. Right. He wouldn't have done that in front of the cameras. So mm-hmm. they they originally did it that way in front of the camera. And they were like, why isn't this working? This is so awkward. Oh, right. Because he wouldn't have asked her out if he knew he was on camera. So mm-hmm. that was a good point. They also talk about how usually it's Steve Carell who makes everyone else break. And we've talked about that before. Steve Carell breaks very few times. Everybody else breaks because of Steve. But in this episode, it was Oscar who made Steve break. And it was that, that scene where he did the, the <laughs> high-pitched <laughs> the high-pitched Southern accent. Uh, they said that most of the shots, most of the takes, he did a sort of low, guttural, kind of like Bubba Blue from Forrest Gump kind of accent. Uh, but this one take, he did like this, and everyone just sort of lost it, they said. So they kept it. They mentioned that in grief counseling, when Ed Truck dies, is the first time that Michael is motivated completely by something in his subconscious. And since then, they've noticed that theme with Michael, and it appears here too. They hint, or they suggest that he didn't really know what was motivating him to play this game. The writer did mention that in this episode, he couldn't really write any of the Michaelisms, uh, which I thought it was fun that he used the word that we use all the time yeah. for Michael's fun phrases. And I'm sure we're not the first, but uh, still, it was cool to hear that word. And he said he, he couldn't use those phrases that he would normally use because Michael wasn't Michael for most of the episode. He was Caleb Crawdad. So that, that yeah. was a fun little tidbit. You had to approach a character playing a character who wouldn't say his normal character things, but would rather say things that are in the role of this other character. Mm. It should be noted that Meredith's brains, when, she, when she's acting as the victim and has her brains spilled out on the floor, um, they are roast beef from the sandwich platter that's foreshadowed from Michael to entice Stanley to stay. So there's the sandwich platter. It finally showed up in the form mm-hmm. of brains. And the last one I had was uh, the... Last line that Michael has, the, the hardest I've worked in a long, long timeline, was originally, it was actually Steve Carell's idea to have this sort of grounding moment for Michael saying, yeah, I worked really hard today. And uh, I don't remember what they said originally was. I think it was just like he finally broke character and maybe said something, but it wasn't that phrase specifically. I did have one last one. Um, when filming, Andy Buckley, who plays David Wallace, was just a few feet away when he was talking on the phone but he didn't appear in the episode which means that they had to schedule around him and as we know he's a finance guy in real life as well as acting mm-hmm. so they had to schedule around him without him actually appearing in the episode and i feel like that's such a hassle and he, they probably could have just used a voice recording but mm-hmm. they didn't yeah um, I, I so thought that they were going to tell us again that he was a <laughs> <know>. finance guy, <laughs> but instead they just told us that he was actually nearby talking on the phone, which I love that they do do the phone recordings like 
in person where they're actually reacting to each other in the the flow of things. Uh, right. But yeah, it does I thought make for tricky. sure. I like already started laughing, anticipating <laughs> that they were going to say that. Okay. And I have our discussion topic for this episode. It's hinted in the in the commentary that Michael is sort of run by his subconscious. Um, not hinted. They they say that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they just flat out say it. But it also appears at times like Michael knows what he's doing with this murder mystery game. What do you think? Is he hiding from the situation or is he trying to steer the ship? I think it's one disguise as the other. So he mentioned that, and, and we talked about, he, he uses these games to distract him from it, the difficult points in his life. And so Battleship for his parents' divorce, uh, operation for his vasectomy, and that would have been traumatizing because he wanted to have kids. And here he was having a vasectomy to make that not possible, right? And then his breakup with Holly, who he thought was the love of his life. And so he was using games to distract himself from that. And this would be just as traumatic, if not more so, because sort of the connecting thread between at least two of those was Dunder Mifflin. And so I think this game is just as much just another game to distract Michael from the hardships of life. Uh, But I think he also maybe doesn't know that in the moment, but he is using the steering the ship, as you put it, to hide his own insecurities and trying to distract himself. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I was thinking something along the same lines, mostly reverting and, and kind of hiding, but mm-hmm. realizing that maybe other people needed that too. Mm-hmm. Now, going into our next episode, we have Shareholder Meeting. It aired on November 19th of 2009 was directed by Charles McDougall and written by Justin Spitzer. The CEO of Dunder Mifflin has invited Michael, the most successful branch manager, to a shareholders meeting in New York, but has failed to tell him the reason for the meeting. Dunder Mifflin is going bankrupt quickly, and the shareholders are livid. Michael somehow digs the company into an even deeper hole by promising the crowd a fix when no one has a fix. In Scranton, Jim struggles to control employees who have made it clear that they believe he doesn't have as much power as Michael, but by the end of the day, he's managed to make this point pretty clear. Michael, it, it was interesting to me that he's being introduced as their most successful branch manager when they have co-managers now. I mean, they, they share a title. It, they are both co-managers of the same branch, and we've stressed that last episode. We don't need to go through it again. And I, I guess I appreciate seniority. And I assume that's what David is sort of leaning towards here. But maybe I think this is also them possibly acknowledging that having two people co-manage one branch is at best unconventional and at worst a stupid idea that would be bad to reveal to the people with money in the company. Yeah, that's I definitely agree with that last point. And um, I saw it more as Michael successfully ran the branch for the majority of the time they're talking about because they were, you know. Mm-hmm. Numbers are are quarterly, right? And Jim hasn't even been in the position for a quarter. That's um, so he wouldn't have had the impact that Michael's had. Mm-hmm. But it would also be weird to bring in two people and say, these are our co-managers of our most successful branch. It, it just, yeah, it'd be weird. Mm-hmm. Michael thinks his meeting is purely about celebrating him and his accomplishments with the company. So it's a big, unfortunate surprise when as soon as they enter 
uh, they start booing. The people in the audience start booing. And it's like Michael's nightmare all of a sudden. He, he turns and looks at the camera. He's very aware of where the documentary camera is during this episode while he's on the stage because he, he has all these like almost Jim-esque glances like, uh, how do I react to the situation here? This is not at all like how I was expecting it to go. I mean, could Michael not have anticipated the nature of this meeting? Could he not have guessed given the plot of murder just an episode before? He probably could have, but being the honored invited guest, he thinks it's about him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because that's Michael. <laughs> and they send a limo to Scranton to pick him up and the hotel, I believe, or conference, that's not a hotel, a conference room that is being held in is beautiful and it's just a little extravagant and it all just kind of stinks of corporate you know corporate greed and um it's it's just a weird vibe and and michael definitely doesn't pick up on that until um he's being booed which is not the reaction he was hoping for he he tries to stand up for corporate as they're sort of being jided by the the shareholders he says no 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 these people are nice you need to stop booing them they're nice people they gave me free food in their big hotel suite and they sent a limousine to drive two and a half hours from Scranton to New York City. And all of those things sound bad when the issue on the table is that the company is running out of money. So as they're leaving for break, my theory holds true, Katie. Michael picks up a microphone and he is so negatively impacted by these angry people that he starts giving this BS nonsense about a 45-day, 45-point plan that's completely unfounded. It's completely unrealistic. It's going to get them back in business, though. And it makes everybody happy in the moment, except for corporate, because they know how ludicrous it is to make a promise like this that they cannot in any way follow through with. Yep. He really... The, the whole time he's he's picking up the microphone and, and talking into it. I mean, we see the CEO like try to usher him away. Um, and Michael just so badly wants to make people happy. It's, he has no idea what he's talking about and he thinks he's helping in some weird way. Okay. I'll say that we have a plan and we'll figure out the plan later. In fact, we see that on their break. He's like, great. So we'll, let's just roll with this thing that I said. Um, <laughs> Let's just give them something to grasp onto that'll turn this meeting around. And in in a very weird way, I kind of get it. Like, it's basically just, let's lie to them. But I don't think that's what Michael initially meant. He just wanted them to stop booing. Mm -hmm. He just wanted applause. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah, I think it's it's like 80% him not liking being booed. And wanting to get their approval. And then 20% uh, thinking, okay, these people are angry. I can make them happy. So their needs are secondary. He just wants to feel better about himself first. Mm -hmm. And then being happy and cheering at the end of it is a nice byproduct of that. Um, but I, I just love that my microphone theory is continuing to hold true. Yeah. <laughs> and as, as he's picking up the mic and talking into it, the camera is positioned so that you can see David and he face palms. He's like, oh no, Michael has a microphone. What do I do? Never. <laughs> and he and can't do anything. <laughs> there are hundreds of shareholders at this meeting. I mean, it's huge. It's in a big, mm -hmm. huge conference room. Um, 
ballroom, basically. And uh, Michael is saying, we have this 45-day, 45-point plan, one point a day, and we're in business. You can take that to the bank. Um, And then he just throws in some nonsense. We're going to go completely carbon neutral. Stop. (laughs) And he runs off the stage. And I didn't remember him running back on the stage either. I I didn't remember how long that he sort of just dragged that on. Yeah. Oh, just shut up. Just stop talking. (laughs) And he was sort of just blowing smoke, but I don't think he knew that he was blowing smoke. He was like, okay, this will make people happy, and then we'll just give it to them. It wasn't, let's lie to them to make them happy, and then we'll figure out what to do after. I think he was legitimately like, okay, this is the solution. Easy peasy. He just didn't realize that you have to back that up with something. And so they go back to the suite, and the CEO, uh, whose name is Alan Brand, by the way, and the former senator, his name is Chris O'Keefe. And they're the, the two of them are dumbfounded with this guy making promises out of his butt that they obviously can't keep. And Michael just doesn't see what he did wrong because he made all those angry people happy. And when they don't have a solution for his solution, Michael calls in Oscar to come up with something. But Oscar didn't really have anything nice to say about any of these people until he was in the room with them. Yeah, he got really quiet. He was bad-mouthing them um, all morning. And then Michael invites him up to the suite to come up with this 45-day plan. Thanks a lot. Got to fix my problem now. (laughs) To fix the own problem that he's created. Oscar basically just leaves. He stumbles on his words for a moment. He says that they're in good hands and just pieces out. I mean, get out quick. After Oscar leaves, Michael walks back in and says, okay, yeah, we're in trouble. I think, I, think we, I think we're in trouble, guys. It's like it finally dawns on him. We don't have a solution. Yikes. This is just now, uh, uh, this is just now occurring to me. We're in trouble. Oops. And so he says, maybe I should just go out and I'll tell a few jokes. I'll ease the crowd. The congressman can follow. And the congressman asks, where's the off button on this moron? And Michael stands up for himself, which I love. He says, I'm not the moron because I've been profitable. My branch continues to turn a profit quarter after quarter. I'm not the one failing to run this, corp- this company. So you're, maybe you're the moron. And that ends his <laughs> stay as an honored guest with this corporate, these corporate people. And so he skips out and he races to get to the limo before the driver is told not to take them home. Yes, because that's exactly what he is about to be told. He can take the bus. So Michael grabs Oscar and Andy. Sorry, Michael grabs Oscar and Dwight. And they run to the limo and um, they head back to Scranton. And that's it in New York. Yeah, Andy too. Andy is there. Oh, he is. Yes, sorry. Yeah, because Andy the whole time is trying to sort of spurn Oscar into standing up and saying something to corporate's faces. Because Oscar is apparently a shareholder in the company in addition to being an employee. And so he's very vocal about how dumb he thinks management is and how they're morons. He says DMI is their stock exchange name, and that stands for dummies, morons, and idiots. So, I mean, he's got very strong opinions, and it's only when he's in their faces that he uh, shuts up. Uh, But Andy was trying to spurn him to say something, and I I said, so much for having his own quitting story. You think back to Mm. two weeks in season five, he says... I always love a good quitting story. I'm at, I dream of having my own someday or something like that. I mean, not saying he should have quit here, but I mean, if he wanted to speak his mind, maybe that should have been what he, what he did. 
We also have a B-plot with Jim and Scranton. As I said in the intro, um, he's struggling to keep employees on task while Michael's away, specifically Ryan. He asks Ryan to consolidate some client info, and Ryan says, basically, well, the company's going under, so let's just wait before we work on that. Jim asks him to do it. Ryan refuses. It's just complete insubordination. Has it's It's as if... Someone beneath him was was asking him to complete a task. I mean, he was just not at all interested. He he wouldn't even look up from his computer to talk to Jim. It was just. <sighs> <laughs> and then Phyllis takes a two hour lunch with Bob and comes back tipsy, and she tells Jim this. And it reminds me of Kevin uh, back when Jim first took this job. Kevin comes in and says, "Yeah, I'm late to work," and I don't remember what else. He detailed, but he was telling Jim stuff that maybe if they were just co-workers, it was fine to share that information. But now Jim is his superior, and Jim really can't keep that kind of stuff close to the vest. He has to dish out discipline if discipline is needed. Um, so Jim realizes then that these people don't think he's as much of a boss as Michael is because specifically of an email that Ryan sent out to everybody saying, yeah, Jim can't fire people. Jim can't do this. Jim can't do that because he's not the real boss. So Jim makes an example and it is wonderful. Um, But really quick before we get to that, Phyllis. So she took her two hour lunch. She got tipsy, told Jim. Jim says, "Okay, you can't be telling me this stuff and you shouldn't be doing that in the first place. She says, oh, it's okay. Michael doesn't really care about these things. You're talking to your boss. Um, (laughs) And then getting to the Ryan thing. Jim's, he he confides in Pam. He says, I don't actually know if I can fire people. I think I can, but I'm not going to fire him. Let's do one better. So Jim goes back to the annex to check on Ryan and see how he's progressing. Um, Ryan says he's done the task three different ways in his head, and he's just such a perfectionist that he'd rather not do it at all than do a crappy version of it. Jim says, okay, it's data entry. There's only one way to do it. Do it. Ryan suggests that since Jim has such a specific idea for it, maybe he should just do it himself. Jim suggests to a very annoying Ryan that perhaps he's distracted and he's come up with a plan for Ryan. Ryan says, I'm glad you're finally being proactive, Jim. (laughs) Ugh, slap that kid in the face, he deserves it. So Jim decides to move Ryan into the storage closet, you know the one, in the break room between the bathrooms with probably no internet. With it's just enough room for a desk and a person, and that's it. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. So it's a dark closet between the bathrooms. And, that and the is best now part his... is, and the best part is, he calls everybody's attention. He says, yes. "Hey, everybody, can I have your attention? Look at what I'm doing to Ryan. You're next. If you continue yep. what you're doing, basically, and it does make an, a noticeable impact. Everybody reacts and is like, "Oh, yeah, I guess I should start listening to this guy." And Ryan, uh, for what it's worth, as soon as Jim opens up and shows him, here's your new desk, here's your new office, Ryan says, I'm sorry, I will go and I'll do my work. And Jim just laughs at him and closes the door on him. And it, it, it's great. It's so good. And by the way, since you mentioned Ryan looking at his computer, we know that Ryan's talking BS when he says he's a perfectionist, blah, 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 blah. But there's evidence in that scene. He is playing Tetris on his computer. By definition, a game for perfectionists. He is terrible at it. <laughs> if you look at the screen, I paused and I'm like, he's got a, a 
uh, solid stripe of lines over here that he could have filled. And it, he's just so bad at Tetris. If he was a perfectionist like he claims to be, he would be doing so much better. <laughs> this is coming from a guy who plays Tetris all the time on his phone. But I mean, it's the little thing. Yeah, it's the little made, things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very subtle, very uh, nerdy joke about being a perfectionist. But mm -hmm. there it is. Anything else you wanted to mention character-wise? Nope. Let's go on to the funny stuff. What do you got? So the cold open, we have Dwight as Recyclops. So Recyclops is an Earth Day tradition that Dwight has um, installed in the office. <laughs> it started out several years ago as a fun kind of superhero type reminder of Earth Day. Simple green shirt, a uh, little decoration providing recycling facts. Each year, he developed a bit more and and a bit more, and a bit more, and got more high-tech. And then, after a fictional tragedy happened on his fictitious home planet, Recyclops vowed to destroy the planet he once loved. Now he's a monster who hates the Earth. He sprays aerosol cans everywhere, and he points out that they're terrible for the environment. Dwight, I mean, sorry, Recyclops, says, humans are terrible for the environment. Well, that's true. <laughs> Especially when they spray aerosol cans. Yeah, specifically. <laughs> um, and then they also, because they had to film this as if it was years past, they brought back Ronnie in the I flashbacks. I was about to say that. Who, yeah, who you may remember as the receptionist who replaced Pam, Rice Ronnie. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I, I love that continuity. Yeah, and that, that's crazy continuity because Ronnie was only there for literally an episode, if that, yeah. uh, because she ended up leaving and Ryan replaced her after committing fraud. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that's my favorite part about that cold open, actually, is the fact that it's sort of a timeline through the series. Mm. At the beginning of the actual episode, after the theme song, Michael is practicing his wave because, again, he thinks this is going to be a big celebration of him as the honored guest. And after he waves, he does a twirl. And everybody's like, nope, hate the twirl. Don't do the twirl. And he's like, I'm not going to do the twirl. And we cut to his office and it's talking head. Obviously, I wasn't going to do the twirl. It was a spin anyways, and I might do the spin. <laughs> and sure enough, he does do the spin in the, uh, at the meeting after everybody's cheering him after he's lied about the 45, plan 45 points plan. Michael meets with someone named Lori, who works for exec at, at, at this time, I guess. She says, Mr. Scott, they introduce themselves. Um, she says, I'm Lori. He goes, oh, hi. Thank you. And please call me. Please continue to call me Mr. Scott. <laughs> he um, was about to say, please call me Michael, but he realized, no, I like being called Mr. Scott. I never get called Mr. Scott. So he reminded her to keep doing that. Uh, some, some talk about the limos. Michael was very excited about it, but at first he tries to pretend he's not. He says, yeah, they're sending a town car, which is actually better than a limo because it's got better torque. It's got better handling. And then the limo gets there and he's like, yeah, town cars suck. A, a company sends a town car when it's in trouble, but they send a limo when they have cause for celebration. And they're obviously celebrating me. And then when they're actually riding through, riding the limo, uh, he says, I wish the windows weren't tinted so people could see us in here. That's the opposite of most people in limos. They don't want people to see them. It's supposed to be a, a more private kind of thing. And they... Andy asks if they think anybody's had sex in there, and they're all seeming pretty excited that they think... Yeah, probably, definitely people have had sex there, which is really awkward and gross. 
Dwight then, says, smells like it. Yeah, smells like it. <laughs> <laughs> Which you would almost miss if you didn't have the subtitles, I think. It's, it's sort yeah. of overlapped with things. Um, and then when David asks him about the limo after he arrives at the, the hospitality suite, he says, yes, thank you. It was very sublime. <laughs> I just love the way he described it. It's very sublime. <laughs> which was the perfect segue in, into my next one. Which, And then he's introduced to the senator, and <laughs> his greeting is, your eminence. <laughs> <laughs> which I don't think is a greeting for anyone, and it was just, I laughed so hard at that every time. Maybe the, the Queen eminence. of England, but that's that's pretty much it. Aside your from, highness? Yeah, that, your highness. That would work. Yeah. It, it's, I don't so know, funny. too much TV or something. Um, Dwight reveals he has a shirt guy. Uh, he says, I wanted to lob Michael a softball question early, not necessarily for Michael's sake, but so that he could swing by the garment district nearby and pick up a few crates of his shirts. Now, Great. my mind, I picture a crate as holding many shirts, and he's picking up a few of them. So I just have to ask... Does Dwight not wash his shirts? Does he wear it once and throw it away? Like, what? who I needs mean, that many shirts when they're all the same earthy color of mustard? We've seen that the plumbing at Shroot Farms is not, it's barely existent. They yeah. have running water. Um, I don't know that they have a washing machine, so that's a possibility. Yeah, maybe so. Not that people can't wash clothes without one, but it's a possibility. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a few crates. I just assume that he's throwing them away. Yeah. The CEO introduced Michael in a very flattering way as they're walking on stage. Sort of that he's a ray of hope in these uncertain times. He's managed to maintain steady profits. He even gets scattered applause at, at this introduction. However, the waste repurposing plant that's uh, mentioned after Michael gets much more applause than Michael does. And uh, he's not too thrilled about that. No. <laughs> Dwight gets in line to ask Michael a question and he struggles getting a place because if he at first starts in one line and he's like, oh, well, that microphone over there doesn't have anybody in line. So I'll go over there. And so he starts fighting across people in the rows to get to the other one. And while he's fighting across, that fills up. And so he's stuck in one or the other line that are both very full. And so he gets a spot. A woman in front of him says, hey, uh, can I go use the restroom real quick? Will you save my place? He says, no, the, the guy she's talking to is perfectly fine with it. But Dwight interrupts and says, no, you can't. She says, it'll be only a second. He goes, ah, if only's in just were candies and nuts and every day would be earned to Donkfest. That's one of my favorite lines from the entire series. <laughs> and I don't know why. She, she just looks at him so confused that she's like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to the bathroom then. <laughs> but I did look it up. Earned to Donkfest is German for harvest festival. So it would make mm-hmm. sense that Dwight and his family would celebrate it because he's a farmer. Jim asks the office in the middle of all of this, who has more power thing, who here believes I have as much power as Michael? Pam, or first, no one raises their hand. And then Pam kind of, oh, me, I do. And then we get a talking head. She goes, I forgot I have to support him and no matter what. Close one. <laughs> oh, oops, we're married now. I have to be your number one. My bad. Uh, as they're getting ready to board the limousine, Oscar comments, man, management's a bunch, a bunch of boobs for spending money on the limousine like this. Uh, Michael says, hate to break it to you, Oscar, but some of us like boobs. <laughs> <laughs> and Dwight says, calves, calves all the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Keep if, that to if yourself. If you say so. 
I believe the very last thing of the episode, um, Dwight finally, after an entire episode, gets to the microphone. And at first, his, his statement is taken well. He says, I just want to say that I have been standing in this line all day. And if this line is any indication of how this company is being run, then we are in big trouble. And everyone loves that. Yes, very true. He says, right, thank you. I know. And I just want to say that there are options out there. Still, the, the crowd applauds. He says, a take a number option like they have in the deli. Or what about line varieties, like an express line for quick comments? And he just goes on. He wastes his opportunity to speak on talking about how the line was handled. And the CEO is like, thank you for your suggestions. Like, thank that is something that we can maybe consider, actually. <laughs> at our next shareholder meeting, which we may not ever have. Yeah, thank you for not being angry at me. <laughs> which this, that, that reminds me of something that happens in the future but I don't want to spoil it. So hopefully I remember to refer back to this episode when we get there because it's a couple seasons away. I have just a couple more to finish us off as far as funny moments go. Andy has a talking head. He says, you know, I've always been the guy who can rally other people to rebel because that's what he's been trying to get Oscar to do this whole time. He says, in high school, I organized a walkout over standardized testing, got over 500 students to just skip the SATs. At the last second, I chickened out though. So I took it anyway, got a 1220, always regretted it. I feel lacrimose. <laughs> and he just sort of looks at the camera. Nice SAT word, Andy. Good job. Congrats. <laughs> and the last one for me is uh, as Jim is sort of staring on Ryan and he's trying to figure out how best to make an example of him. Ryan is tossing a ball up and down and it says, do you love her or do you love the idea of her? And then the camera zooms out and he's talking to Creed, who's not who I would have expected him talking to. And Creed just says, I don't know, man. I just don't know. So Creed's trying to find love, I guess. Good for him. In his Even potential murderers age. need to find love. <laughs> <laughs> so deleted scenes on this episode. This is sort of a, a running gag. I guess I'll say them both. Michael fell asleep in the limo on the way to New York. And gets mad at the guys for letting him fall asleep. He gets more mad when he sees that they stop for fast food and for Sundays. On the way back to Scranton, the limo pulls up to Dunder Mifflin after dark. They've made it. Michael fell asleep again. And they've got Sundays again. Uh, but fear not, Dwight got Michael a Sunday. But Michael is so bummed because he really wanted to eat it while they were driving in the limo. He's like, That's the whole thing. <laughs> And he asks the limo driver how long he has left in the car. He says he has one minute left. So as everyone starts to leave, uh, he props his feet up and eats the um, pistachio sundae, which Dwight has gotten him. He hates it, but he eats it anyway. I loved both of those deleted scenes. I thought they were so funny. It, the, the first one was funny, but then the second one was like, okay, that's really good. That's awesome. Yeah. Dwight has a talking head while in line. He's... Uh, constantly urging people to move forward as soon as there's an open space in the line. He says, you know, I was the shortest line leader in preschool at three foot two. I was in charge of keeping children up to height three foot six in line. They hated me, but I wasn't there to make friends. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. um, also in the line, one of the lines, uh, Mike stops working. So it suggested that they combine with Dwight's line. This will now put Dwight back towards, oh, the middle of the line, and he was almost at front. He's not okay with this. 
Yeah, instead of the second line going behind the first line, they sort of zipper instead so that they yeah. actually merge. Uh, we see Michael's text to Oscar, which is funny <laughs> because we just sort of see Oscar's reaction to it in the episode. But he, he reads it out. He says, the lead, your help, come to hers, fatality suite, as soon as possible. Thanks. <laughs> also, sir, hi to Andy. And he spells Andy with an I instead of a Y. (laughs) (laughs) And Oscar just really takes time on those misspelled words. Mm -hmm. This is post Ryan's desk change. Everyone's scared of Jim. Finally. Um, Angela asks Jim if if she can leave for the day. It's 5 p.m. Normally, yeah, go ahead. But unless you don't want me to. Um, So she's checking in there. Phyllis says that uh, she has a dentist appointment in the morning. She said it's scheduled for a long time. She might be a little late. Jim says, okay, thanks for letting me know. And then Phyllis goes on to justify her appointment. It's okay. You've got it cleared. You don't, it, you're all right. She leaves. And Jim just smiles at the camera. He's kind of loving this mm-hmm. managerial feeling of, of being just a little bit feared. I kind of wish that had been left in the episode. I, 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 mm. I think it's so great seeing the results that they actually paid off. Yeah. Discussion topic for this episode. It's not anything that's going to be something we linger on, but I just wanted to ask what happened with Dunder Mifflin? You know, there's been the threat of branch closings and budget cuts and lack of raises since season one, since episode one, that has been a threat, but all of a sudden they're tanking. And apparently the reason is poor management. I was just curious, do you have any ideas like what would lead to that? Because, I mean, paper's a dying industry, right? But they're insinuating here that it's the manager's fault, the the management's fault. I I don't know quite how to answer that. It doesn't seem all of a sudden to me. It seems like it's been a decline since the pilot, that it's kind of been a theme that they touch on every now and again, like, oh, right, downsizing or whatever. I mean, we're not business people, but... Certainly, by by no stretch of the imagination. Maybe them agreeing to have Jim and Michael be co-managers was their attempt at, you know, fixing a management problem. Although Michael, before Jim, was still the most successful manager. I, I really don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I was just curious because it just... Yeah, it's been a steady decline, but I'm just trying to imagine what corporate could have done to lead to bankruptcy all of a sudden. I don't know. It's just a little strange to me. Because David Wallace is the CFO. He's the guy in charge of finances. And it seems to me like he's got a good head on his shoulders. I mean, he's made some poor judgment when uh, talking about Michael specifically. Uh, maybe we can chalk this up to the Michael Scott Paper Company <laughs> and <laughs> the buyout of all three of them. Who knows? They would love that. Yeah. Well, I don't think they would love it so much if it cost them their well, jobs. <laughs> no, but they would love to pin it on Michael at least. Right, right. Well, that brings us to the end of our official 59th episode of An American Workplace. Contact us at facebook.com slash workplacepod or at workplacepod on Twitter. If you care to rate, review, and subscribe, you can do so on Apple Podcasts. If you care to email us, you can do so at workplacepod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at ktlady623 or at facebook.com slash katie.white. 
Best place for me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And you can find my other podcast, Cinescope, where podcasts can be found and at thecinescopepodcast.com. And show notes and contact information for this podcast can be found at workplacepodcast.com. If you want to shout out and more of an American workplace each week, including access to our discussion outline and notes, a logo sticker, bonus episodes, and live streams, check out our Patreon page and pick the support level you think is most worth it to you at patreon.com slash workplace pod. That's all for this week. Thank you for joining us to watch one of our favorite shows, The Office, here on episode 59 of An American Workplace. Make sure to join us in episode 60 for our discussion on the next much-anticipated episode of season 6, Scott's Tots. Bye. Make our dreams come true. So he kind of resigns. Okay, I'll take you to the finest place. Sorry, punched my mic. Okay, well, let's go ahead and go into our next episode. Uh, this I have a discussion is... topic. Oh, yep, you do have a discussion <laughs> topic. You do the thing. And then he's introduced to the seminar. Nope. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was almost inappropriate. Um, <laughs>